Tonight on This is Vinyl Tap, roaches in the cellar, bugs in the sugar. Dinosaurs Victrola, listening to Buck Owens, five-year plans and new deals. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Doug Cooper, and we are at the Vinegar Rune Saloon, located in the heart of Frog Song Farms. Mm -hmm. I'm joined tonight by Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Uh, Good afternoon, Tapsters. And I'm also joined by... Tony, Power Pop Tony is with us. <laughs> Not tonight, though. Uh, yes. Hi, everybody. It will be tonight by the time we finally get going. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have an intrusion. We have an intrusion. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we have an intrusion tonight. Uh, normally, each of us has our own area that we follow. <laughs> Imagine for a moment, if you will. Imagine, if you will. <laughs> Doug Cooper decides to choose a band called Happy, Happy Jangles and the Handclaps <laughs> from 1992. That would be an intrusion. Well, we have an intrusion tonight by T. Yeah. He's picked a blues-based rock band from 1970, <laughs> only one year off of my year. T. Yeah. You have picked the finest Southern rock band ever to come out of California. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I take a slight issue with that. It's not Southern rock like Leonard Skinner or any of that other stuff. It's I, I, I prefer the term a lot of people throw at them, which is swamp rock. I think that's I think more that's appropriate. Good, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and my... Uh, my pedantic friend has chosen <laughs> Cosmo Factory by Credence Clear Cosmos. Cosmos. Possessive Cosmos yes. Factory uh, from Credence Clearwater Revival. That is correct. And we're about to talk about probably two of the most productive years in rock and roll <laughs> that has ever happened. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, it is. And it's a little bit like uh, what uh, Bad Company song does it remind you of? 
Don't you know that you are a superstar? And then it burns up on reentry, ladies and gentlemen. We have a short career here, but a fantastic career. If you don't know who Credence Clearwater Revival is, welcome to Earth. <laughs> Tony! Yeah, Doug. I have a question for you. What would that question be, Doug? Who's Cosmo? Uh, Cosmo is, oh, geez, is it the drummer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that who it was? Uh, yeah. Stu, uh, no, um, no, Stu's the bassist. It's, yeah. um, I never remember Doug. that guy's name. <laughs> yeah. Um, Doug uh, Clifford. It. Doug Clifford. Yeah, Doug Clifford. Yeah, it was so good. He has two it, first names. Well, his, um, his, uh, he was in a fraternity in college, and the, one of his frat brothers called him Clifford C. Clifford, <laughs> and they asked him, what does the C stand for? And he said, well, you know, I kind of like the stars and stuff. Cosmo. And that stuck as his nickname. So uh, I'd forgot, I'd, I couldn't remember what his actual name was. <laughs> and that's from the Greek Cosmo. Yeah. yeah. Meaning world or beyond. Yeah. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, uh, T has picked a, a fantastic album from 1970. Uh, most reviewers give this five stars. Uh, it was highly regarded at the time. And it's a well-loved album. And it's a little surprising to me that this is our first time to check in with CCR. But we say that every uh, every episode now that we're over 100. <laughs> T. Yeah, Doug. Your power pop fans are wondering, why did you pick this album? Um, I love Creedence Clearwater Revival. And in particular, I love John Fogarty. There, there's something about the, you know we talked when we talked about American Beauty and the Grateful Dead. I think at some point in that podcast we talked about that maybe being the quintessential American album. I think CCR is a quintessentially American band. I, I think this band sums up everything good about American music, um, and not just from this time period, just in general. Uh, and uh, and I just I've always I've always loved. I, I think Fogarty could sing the phone book, and I would love it. I love the guy's voice. It's so soulful and emotive, and it's unusual. And um, you know, and when you when you go back in the research we did, and you're listening to his brother sing, his brother's got a fantastic voice. I mean, really a beautiful voice. But it ain't it ain't as it ain't John Fogarty, which is like a gut punch sometimes in some of his songs. Um, and so. If you're asking me why I picked this particular album, I don't remember if that's what you asked or if you just asked why I picked CCR. Um, it was a toss-up between this one and the one that came before it, Willie and the Poor Boys. Poor Boys. And uh, and this one won out slightly just because there's... I know we're talking about the full album, but there's songs on this particular album I want to talk about. So, um, And it's also kind of my MO to pick an album that's a transitional album. This was kind of the them at their peak and kind of the end like the beginning of they the were of the about band. to transition into oblivion yeah, yeah. essentially i mean the, the the remarkable thing about this band is at this point in their career they were outselling the beatles <laughs> they were the biggest rock and roll band in the world and i don't know how many people understand I know, about they them. were if you just look at this, this particular album it went to number one in so many different countries <laughs> think, think about when this album uh was released um and what it was competing against. And uh, it's it, remarkable. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's un- unbelievable. I think the album before it, um, Willie and the Poor, Bo- Poor Boys, I don't know why I keep want to say Poe Boys, po I guess because of the Swamp Rock. Because you're hunger and um, you want a Poe Boy. But uh, 
I think that album, out of all the albums that, that were released in 1969, I'm pretty sure... I mean, it got strong. Okay. That's my neighbors. Uh, um, <laughs> that album may have sta- been at number one longer than any other album that year, I'm, which is right, just yeah. incredible. And you know, every, you're right. This is 1970, and there's some serious competition at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the the British invasion is by no means over. No. No. And uh, they're pushing the Beatles off the pop charts. Yeah. Which not, is, not many people can and, say that. And, and the weird thing about CCR is that they, uh, they hold the distinction in Billboard of being the band with the most number two singles without ever having a number one is that right yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> they always just just barely got there or just wow. just bubbled under the surface of number one they had a couple of number one records but um i mean you know and doug was making a comment about the 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 period i mean these guys were essentially a band they were ccr for what four years essentially very yeah. short, short period of time. Well, they were there were incarnations of them before, but yeah, they they were in those four years. Well, CCR in those four years, they released seven albums. They had seventeen top forty hits. Uh, they had eleven top ten singles, and like I said, they outsold the Beatles at the end of, <laughs> at, at this point in their time. It's yeah. just incredible. And it's funny that we're doing this after uh, the Beach Boys because we have another band giving the Beatles all they can handle. <laughs> um, it would be one thing to put out a bunch of records, <laughs> but to put out three records in one year that all sound like greatest hits records, mm-hmm. that's what they did. And I tried really hard to think of anybody else who comes close to that accomplishment. And I guess the Beatles are the only one that, yeah, and that really came yeah. close. But these guys, and, and we're not talking about a group of guys working together to come up with tunes. We're talking about one guy. And yeah. I think when we d- dig in here, we're going to find out that uh, his compulsive focus and drive probably were his strength and his weakness. Yeah, yeah and when he, when he decided to give a little... Uh, <laughs> the band went away a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. his... Uh, he famously allowed everyone to have uh, equal control on uh, the last, what was it? Um, the last Mad- Mardi Gras. Yeah. Mardi Gras, which I, which, which has, is a famously bad album. Yeah, yeah, I think Rolling Stone said it was one of the worst rock and roll albums uh, ever. John Landry, uh, yeah, said it was the worst uh, rock and roll album by a major band ever. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. So uh, <laughs> from the heights talk of the about heights, about being able to say, "Told you so." Told you so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, guys. It's Christmas, uh huh, and it's uh, it's a time of giving. Has anyone and, told the children in uh, Ethiopia? <laughs> <laughs> it's a time of giving and receiving, and um, I just want to say I have uh, received a gift from doing this podcast. Um, it's the gift of reassessment. Oh, well, that's good. Yes. Um, by that, I mean, I, if I don't like something, um, I've had to figure out why I don't like something. Like, I have I've, I had to go in and say, I don't like this because of why. And I'm going to say this, and I'm going to probably write, you know, you guys might be surprised, is I'm not really a fan of Creedence Clearwater Revival, um, and I've never really understood why until this episode. And so there's two things, two things I want to mention about this. The first part is... You hate America. <laughs> Usually it's Tony that hates America. I know, it's usually I know. I'm the one, but... In 1972, my family moved from LaGrange 
to uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. Oh, well, that I understand that, well, now. I'm, I'm going to come into that. I'm gonna come uh, into that would that. make anybody hate CCR. Right. <laughs> I was five years old, and um, this was the time of you know polyester dresses and you know, shaggy hair and you know wide ties and short sleeve shirts that were yellow that they, that that were dress shirts. You know, and and it just everybody looked like I mean, polyester slacks. Uh, every man over 30, I, I like, believe that's called the seventies. Yes, I know. Every, every man in his, in his, uh, over 30 looked like they should be a, uh, working at a, or the manager of a fast food restaurant or um, radio shack. Yeah. Or radio shack. Um, and, but was, this was also the time when I started listening to music that wasn't, you know, from a Disney movie or, you know, and I figured out that my dad's stereo played music better than my little 45, you know, my mono with the mono stereo. Um, record player with like the, your mono the, computer with, yeah, <laughs> yeah. with the big giant tone arm you know that and you know it, it just seems like but at this time it seemed like every time i got in the car credence clearwater revival was playing and probably I, were and i i could not escape them this is i guess when i was becoming more self-aware and i just all of the stuff from the 70s just comes back into my mind every time i hear this i think so much it reminds me so much of living in corpus christi texas um what about lagrange well i don't, I don't remember <laughs> but then we we moved eventually and then to to mason texas and i would come to you know i'd get home from school and i'd put on captain gus or you know watch reruns of gilligan's island and they always had the I guess Credence uh, twenty golden hits came out around that time or that, that greatest hits album and they that Chronicles put, yeah Chronicles they put that on that was on constantly that on the TV that they were they were trying to sell that album and they would have all these picture you know these videos of Credence and you just see John Fogarty with his little mop hair you know looking like his his hair was too big for his face you know he just looked there was just something about it just drove me crazy and it just kept reminding me of the you know 1970s every time i saw it so i think that's something i have to get over i had i'd had to tell myself i've got to get over this i gotta listen i gotta stop associating this with the with them but i think i figured it out what really bothers me about them i think that john fogarty has the same problem that Bob Seger has. And that is he has an incredible voice. But that voice has one setting. Oh, I disagree 100%. I, I have, I 100%. And I think but it's it's and it's another the other thing is great songs. Just fantastic songs. Not played very well. I think that the backing band is really not that good, especially Doug Clifford's drums. They drive me completely <laughs> insane. The the bass playing I think is good, but the the rest I, I I don't know I just can't get past the way that he's just such a I don't know I, I hear some of these songs I go gosh I wish that they were just played had a better backing band behind him and I think that's what has what I when you know I get past all the seventies nostalgia and all that that's what really well I think Jonathan me. thank you uh, and I, I appreciate that brief uh, explanation <laughs> on how you feel uh i think tony disagrees with you but i'm gonna agree with you on something uh, and that's the drummer and i'll have a little special for everybody a little later in the uh, in the deal uh i can see placing bob seger and john fogarty's voice in the same category 
out of the honkies that sing rock and roll, they are two of the top. Uh, I think the bands are not good in the opposite way. Credence has a rough band. Bob Seger's band is too smooth. It sounds like it should be doing uh, commercials. Yeah. Um, and if you listen to the Bob Seger system rather than the Silver Bullet band, you can hear how he sounds with a rough band. Yeah. But, um, Tony, you are correct. Fogarty has one of the greatest voices in rock and roll. He also is a ridiculously good songwriter who writes songs about subjects that baffle me. I don't understand some kid in San Francisco coming up with the uh, ideas for, like, Proud Mary. I don't know where that came from, but it's anyone who says that's less than a great American classic is uh, ridiculous. Uh, And he is the king of little ditties on the guitar that, that hook you. He can write a guitar hook better than uh, anyone I yeah. know. And he's not a bad guitarist. No, he's no, not. In he's fact, a really good I, I, and he loves the blues, which is all makes it more interesting that this is a Tony pick. Well, it, it, you know, just going back to his guitar playing, it's something that I never, I kind of took for granted until we were listening to this more, you know, clinically, I guess, if you will. And I was like, this guy can really play the guitar. Well, not only can he play guitar, <laughs> he can play saxophone. Yeah. He, he does some great keyboard work. On yeah. Um, um, yeah. He, he's not he's, the weak link. When, when we talk about a good guitar player, I'm not going to say that he has uh, Flash Gordon um, technical skills, but he does know how to pick out the right notes for it, a solo. Right. It's, I think you've said this before, Doug, by about other guitarists. He knows exactly what is right for the song he's playing. He shares that with Robbie Robertson. I think yep. Robbie Robertson yep. is one of the, probably the um, best guys in the world. He matches it, yeah. his, his leads are not indifferent to the tune. They, I, they are responsive to the tune. I'm going to be interested to hear what you guys sing, say about the drummer. Cause I think there's a couple of songs on this album where I actually really like the drumming on it. Most of the time, I'm not paying attention, but there's two songs in particular that I think it stands out and, and adds to the song. But um, he sounds like he's standing up while he plays drums. <laughs> I, what, uh, just real quick, and I don't, I don't want this to be a another one of these episodes where Jam and I are duking it out the whole time. But um, <laughs> it is surprising to me that you can listen to something like um, the last song in this album and say that Fogarty's got just one rank, one thing he does. We'll get to, we'll get to that because <laughs> yes, I, I, I am, I am going to, yeah, I, I, um, I agree with you there. The, but the thing I want to say before we kind of get into more in depth about the band is the other thing I, th- I think that this band does really well. And this may be something else that you disagree with me is they have the ability to take a song that, you know, we talk about this from time to time, like, why do you need to do this? Why do you need this? And none of this, none of the covers on Cosmos Factory are something that needed to be done. But the vast majority of them, I think, are very well done. And and I don't listen to them and go, ah, right. You know, I'm like, yeah, this is actually a good take on this. This is a fun little song to do. Um, I'm going to disagree with you on one song, but the two other songs, I think, on this album, they and oh, they did like and Midnight Special. They do great. Well, version. that that version of Midnight Special is a remarkable version. Yeah. Shine it up a little. 
and then song. the cotton that, fields cotton fields is, is great too great especially version. if you listen to the beach voice version of cotton <laughs> fields um he knows if, american if, music he does if he yeah. never wrote a uh, single song himself i would go see these guys cover the great american blues uh, yeah lead belly songbook yeah um they are very very good at that i think what happens is we forget that they're putting all these great albums out in less than two years and it makes me say why why are they doing these covers when he's such a fantastic songwriter they had well because they got fantasy <laughs> records breathing yeah down. they had yeah. to i mean that was the only way they could i mean here's here's and thank so, god they're as good at them as they were yeah, were. yeah. I, I think i think that, that one of their biggest hits was a cover that's true i think one of the things that's uh is going to be a little bit that's going to creep into this conversation probably off and on tonight or this afternoon is the idea of because i saw this a lot when i was doing research of credence being classified as a singles band and not an album band and i think there's some legitimacy to that Mm -hmm. but i I also think that there's something about the like you can pull i mean let's be honest i'm being honest and i think you guys might agree with me that you get this period of time where they there's these three or four albums that they do they knock out in a row and it's kind of a blur yeah, I mean it's kind of blur. It's like okay, is this on this album, this on this album, the same album. It could be, um, but there is something as well as when you pull back and listen to those individually, they do kind of have um, well, yeah, we, a completeness to but them. But you know I, what you're you're talking about? Uh, an album is a snapshot of an artist uh, period, right? And if that snapshot is less than twenty months. Yeah, you're not going to get a whole bunch you're of different of periods. Variety, but, but, but the but the other thing is, you know, I I don't think you know Fogarty's not sitting down and saying I'm making an artistic statement right. with this. These not. songs, these um, I think the vast They're majority just coming out of them. No, you're right. And the vast and I'm just talking about the album in general. I think the vast majority of the songs on the album were likely released as singles before they were put on there. Yeah, that's again oh, yeah. not to knock the. But I mean, the album. I, I, I just it, don't think he has time to come up. He with doesn't. The, he doesn't. I think the album before this though. Is more, I, I think, cohesive. more cohesive. It sounds a little, it, there's, and there's just a little bit more. You know, there's the instrumental on there. That's, yeah, that's really. I mean, it was a, t- it, was it was a tough a, choice. Know, it, been, was a, it was a, it was a, I love coin Willie flipper. and the Pole, Poor Boys. It, it was, a, it was a coin flipper. But like I said, there's two songs on this album that kind of bump it up ahead of that yeah. one. So yeah, and I know which two they are. <laughs> well, I've been doing this podcast for long enough to know Tony's picks. <laughs> okay, so I'll I, be I interested. need to start uh, yeah. releasing the pre podcast where i say this is what tony's gonna say but we have some things called a connection we have all been here before it's hard to understand ladies and gentlemen connections is where we review other uh, podcast we've done in light of connections with this podcast. Um, so what I'm going to ask these fellas for is how does this album connect to previous albums that we have reviewed? And I'm going to start with Jonathan J.M. Rowe. All right. The only one that I can really think of is there's brothers on this album. We've done that with the Kinks. Uh, who else have we done that with? Crowded House. Crowded House. Yeah. That's the only thing I can come up with. All right. We have two brothers. We have Tom and John. 
Fogarty. And, and so, the guy who took the picture of the album was it, their brother. He was, oh, oh, that's, that's, that's true. Yeah. That's a great picture. <laughs> I like that album cover. I, like, I think it's a great album cover. I like too. the album cover, too. But uh, I don't think it's a result of fantastic photography. <laughs> <laughs> I could do that with a Polaroid. <laughs> Y'all Google that if you're young. Uh, T? Yeah. You have a connection? I do. It's it's with an artist, and uh, I mean, guys, I guess that's what JM did as well. It's with an artist, and not uh, necessarily the album we did, but uh, Doug Som. That's right. I have no idea. Uh, well, Stu Cook uh, produced Groover's Paradise. Oh, is that right? I got that. And Stu Cook and Doug, Doug Clifford both play on that album. Is that right? Yep. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's and then a great I think, one. And I think later album. on they might have actually toured as a reconstituted version of the um of um the Doug Som Quintet of the uh, Sir Douglas Quintet. Sir I Douglas think so. Yeah. I, that's I, cool. Yeah. Well, I completely missed that one. Yep. Well, I've I've had some of mine taken already, but I'm going to go ahead and say uh, Nielsen. Oh. And Buckley, the absent father. Oh. Oh. We have uh, why did Jam I get I such probably. a counter? Uh, I think that profoundly affects all three of these guys and their music. And uh, I didn't realize that, yeah, you know, someday never comes, yeah. So, we have uh, in this case, we have another situation where the dad splits, and uh, it was not a small deal, no, for John. It probably wasn't for Tom, and who knows how much, uh, how much trouble it caused. Uh, their inability to handle things like that, and it, you know, someday never comes is a direct response to that. Um, if you're if you're a dad and you listen to your son sing that song, that's got to be brutal. Mm-hmm. And it makes you wonder if Brian Wilson wishes he was in that group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Any, anybody else have another? I do. I got um I got another couple. He always beats us on. This. I know. He's uh, uh, well, these are these are kind of cursory, kind of like the ones you guys are doing. Um, <laughs> these suck, kind of like no, y'all's. no, no, no. I mean, just in terms of trying to uh, Billy Joel, uh, bad management. They both signed away their rights to their to their um, yeah to their Catalog, um, their early work. Yeah, their early, early oh, work. Billy Joel signed away the uh, Billy, that album. Billy, what was it? Well, Billy Joel didn't get his get anything back until the eighties. Yeah, yeah. And then of course Fogarty um, didn't so much. Uh, what what he essentially did was just say um, I'm out, and as a result gave up his rights. But same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Which we'll get. To, I think when we talk about. Because Tom later, we're going to the And then uh, there was I've, some disagreement about that. I've got another one. If you guys don't have another one, we Maybe don't. Not. The Beach Boys from California. Both bands had a name foisted upon them that they did oh, not yes. choose. The Beach Boys kept theirs, which was the Beach Boys, and the CCR did not keep theirs, which was we'll get to at some point. The Gollywogs. <laughs> yes. So, what, what an and I, I would recommend everybody named the Gollywogs would get rid of that name as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah, especially now. <laughs> yeah, these days. All right. Well, that was good, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed playing uh, Connections with us. And if you have a connection that we missed, please write in and uh, we'll we'll uh, read your connection over the air and you can tell us how stupid we are. Well, T, yeah. we're on the fifth album. We are. These guys recorded previous albums before they became Credence Clearwater mm-hmm. Revival. Mm-hmm. And uh, before that, 
they were born. <laughs> <laughs> well, you yeah. want to tell us a little bit about this band? Yeah. So, um, so as, as we talked about, there's um, the, the four guys in this band are John Fogarty, Tom Fogarty, Stu Cook, and Doug, Doug Clifford. Um, Tom Fogarty is John's older brother. Um, but John Fogarty, Stu Cook, and Dick, uh, Doug Clifford all attended junior high together. And at the, at the name of the town is L. I can't. Yeah. Sir, Sir, Cerrito. Is that sound I, right? I couldn't get it. Anyway, at, at, in 1958, at age 13, they put together their first group and it's called the Blue Velvets. And they're playing mostly instrumental stuff. There's not a whole lot of competition at that point. So they're kind of like the biggest thing going on at the time. And then the, the way the original lineup worked out was John Fogarty was on guitar. Stu Cook played piano, not oh. bass. Oh, that's right. And yeah. Doug Clifford was on drums. Tom Fogarty, his older brother, had his own band called Spiderweb and the Insects. He was the lead singer of that band. But he also um, would sing lead with the Blue Velvets backing him up. And so his younger brother's band would come in and back him up, and and Tom Fogarty would sing lead, and that's how they got started. The, I mean, it was Tom Fogarty and the Blue Velvet, or Tommy Fogarty and the Blue Velvets, and and John was not singing lead at that point. Um, in '61, they actually end up signing with a, a label called Orchestra Records. Uh, it's a Bay Area record company, um, and that particular label releases a couple of singles. The first one, it brothers would jointly write. So this is a jointly Tom, Tom and John Fogarty composition called come on baby. That's that's uh, Tom Tom Fogarty and the, or Tommy Fogarty and the Blue Blue Velvet. And that's Tommy singing lead. That's Tommy singing lead. Very and rock and rolly. It is. It well, is. wait till you hear the next single. That that doesn't do much of anything. But they release another single that is called "Have You Ever Been Lonely." Have you ever been lonely? Have you ever been blue? Do you know the feeling when your lover has not been? I hear, I hear uh, uh, Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's so, wonderful. I love that. Love I do too. That's someone awesome. forced Roy to come back alive and yeah. sing. That. So who's well, playing? Is Stu Cook playing piano on that? I, I believe so. Wow. It's it's, it's, it's what's good. interesting about that particular song was it gets a little bit of radio play on KEWS. The program director of that radio station at the time. Casey Kasem. <laughs> <laughs> they so, must have had a lot of yeah. great options back then if that just got a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then in in, uh, in June of 62, Orchestra gives the band one more chance and release a, a, a song called Yes, You Did. And it does even worse than their other two songs. And, and that's it. That's the last thing they ever did for Orchestra Records. I tell you what, I would, um, I would enjoy... On in both of those albums, yeah, you can get them on on a Credence. There's a Credence block box set that has a lot of their old material on it. Was that the only band they had before they joined Credence? <laughs> no, but they that was they. So orchestras they leave orchestra. That's the label. 
and uh, and they end up moving to another label. And there's a, kind of an interesting thing about this, especially since it's Christmas time. After uh, Orchestra Records, the guys end up signing, getting signed to Fantasy Records, which uh, is the label that they're on throughout their entire career. Fantasy Records was owned by two brothers, Saul and Max Weiss. The Weiss brothers were a couple of guys that got into plastics early on uh, in the 40s during the Second World War. And they, after the war, they were manufacturing plastic toys and utensils and other kind of novelty stuff. One day in the late 40s, a, a guy by the name of Jack Sheedy, who was a trombone player, asked them if, he if they would press some records for him. And there were no other local facilities around to do that. And the long player had just been released as a format. Ah. And so they saw a possible... What year was that? Uh, <laughs> is that 19, 1948, right? Um, One year later. <clears throat> yeah. So he's, they see this as an opportunity to get into a new business. And it's, it, seizing that opportunity, they start pressing records around town for people around town. They do novelty records. They do uh, custom records, hillbilly music, all kinds of stuff. At one point, uh, all three of their presses are going at uh, 24 hours a day to keep up with the demand. Uh, some of the artists they had on, on their label um, or released by them were Dave Brubeck's earliest stuff was released. Um, and uh, Lenny Bruce was their big seller in the 50s. And then um, in... 64, they released an instrumental by a gentleman by the name of Vince Guaraldi, who is, yes, the... Vince Guaraldi of Peanuts fame. Of, of the Peanuts Christmas album fame. Yeah. Christmas time. Well, he, he does all of the music for the Peanuts car, uh, movie cartoons. Oh, does he? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I just thought that uh, Charles Schultz wrote one of them. I think so, but uh, Linus and Lucy is probably one of the. That's Vince Grohl. Yeah, yeah. Um, Good so stuff. In 1963, he releases a song, Vince Grohl, on uh, Fantasy Records called "Cast Your Fate to the Wind." It's an instrumental, and, and it's, it's beautiful. And it's yeah, and it's one of the few jazz tracks at that time that actually had crossed over to the pop arena. It hit number twenty-two on the Billboard Singles Chart. And some of the guys in the band, I'm not sure who it was, maybe maybe John and Tom, are watching a PBS television special called Anatomy of a Hit, and they're talking about that particular song and the label, and they realize, holy cow, that label's right. It's in our area. We need to go down there and see if we can get something going. And so they go down there with the idea that they're going to record some instrumentals. Since this was an instrumental and it was a hit, they're going to record other instrumentals for fantasy. And they go down there and they audition for Saul and Max Weiss and their sales marketing manager, Saul uh, Zanz. And uh, Max Weiss ends up seeing, he's, he's like, hmm, we had a little bit of a crossover hit. Maybe these young upstarts can help me get into the pop market. And because they didn't really have a hold on the pop market. And uh, 
And the guys are intrigued because they want somebody that has a little national exposure. But um, what happens is uh, he, he tells them instrumentals aren't a thing anymore. We need a vocal group. We need you guys to be a vocal group, which was fine because they it was really what they were doing at that point anyway. The reason they were doing instrumentals was because of the Vince Guaraldi track. So yeah. that all worked out. And they end up getting signed to the label. The cool thing about Fantasy is they had they also had a record recording studio behind their main offices. At maybe in wasn't name much of a, yeah, yeah, uh, like a, more like a garage. Yeah, like a little <laughs> lean to or something. But it allowed the guys to go in there and, and mess around, and they recorded a couple of tracks and submitted them for acceptance. Hopefully, also around that time, they start playing at a, a little dive bar called the Monkey Inn in Berkeley. Now, the funny thing about that, it's kind of like their cavern club or I don't know what else. It's where they're ch- you know, honing their chops. But the funny thing about that was uh, Tom was the only one that was of age. So the other three guys are essentially playing illegally in the, in the bar. Um, but the bar didn't seem to care. When they're not playing, John Fogarty decides to go up to Portland and uh, play with some bands up there. There's a little scene about 600 miles from where they were in Portland. And uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders were up there. The Kingsmen were up there. The Sonics, the Whalers. And he wants to, you know, rec- you know, uh, play with them a little bit and start, you know, just keep keep his chops up. Um, but while he's up there and he's recording everything that he's doing and listening back to it. But while he's up there, he sings for the first time. And he plays plays it back, and he's fascinated by the way he sounds. And he starts to get a little bit of confidence, like, hey, maybe I can do this. So, anyway, he comes back. The songs that um, that they submitted to um, Fantasy. Fantasy were uh, Don't Tell Me No Lies, backed with Little Girl, Does Your Mama Know. Don't tell me no lies. I really like it. I do too. That's a great song. Don't mm-hmm. tell me no lies. Um, Woman. <laughs> when they got signed to Fantasy, Fantasy didn't like the name, the Blue Velvets. It sounded too 50s. So the the label asked them to change their name. So they started calling themselves The Vision. So they were expecting the single to say The Visions on it. But when they got it, it had a name that they'd never heard of before called the Gollywogs. And the reason why was the British invasion was up and like the like the thing at that point. And so the label said, you know what, we need something that sounds a little bit more British. And the label came up with the name Gollywogs, which was named after a cartoon character and a group of dolls that. Um, well, it's it looks like a Raggedy Ann doll with. Um, it's an African American, yes. a raggedy and all, and not and a very stereotypical one. So yeah. anyway, they did they didn't like the name. Anyway, they they trust their label with the name, and the other thing they trust their label with, which is bizarre as all get out, is the label wants them to wear these giant white wigs <laughs> that um, look like Estelle Getty from the, the Golden, Golden Girls. Girls. <laughs> um, so there's pictures of the it four of them. Could have been the Q-tips. It could have been. Uh, it's, there's ridiculous looking wigs, but there's pictures of them now. We'll post one on the website of them and their lovely white wigs so you can see them. It was in a bizarre time. It is a bizarre time. So when when John comes back from Portland, he decides that he wants to start sharing the vocal duties with his brother Tom. And to Tom's credit, which is a big deal because yeah. he was the lead singer at that point, he agrees. 
And in a 1971 interview, he said, um, he said that uh, I could sing, but John had a sound. And he's absolutely right about yeah. that. So John starts taking over vocal duties and they start playing other types of gigs, such as military bases. And the issue with that was the PA systems <laughs> in these military bases were horrible. And so in order to compensate for that, John would scream over the crowd and he developed this raspy holler that ended up becoming sort of his signature sound yeah. after that. Also around this time, they have Stu switch to the bass off keyboards. They're like, yeah. we need something a little bit more rock and roll. He'd leave the piano behind, pick up the bass. And so he does. And they start working out this new configuration of John singing lead on some of the songs and Stu playing bass at the Monkey Inn. That's where they start working all this stuff out. The Gollywogs end up recording six singles, three for Fantasy and three for a subsidiary of Fantasy called Scorpio Records. And Scorpio was their rock and roll label. They had just, the reason they switched uh, the Gollywogs to Scorpio was that the Grateful Dead had just released their debut on um scorpio on scorpio and so they're like okay well we 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 got a rock and roll label now let's keep the rock over there one of the singles not not most of the singles didn't do anything but one of the singles made a little bit of noise it sold about fifteen thousand copies around the, the bay area and it was called brown eyed girl hey where did we go <laughs> not that brown That sounds like a really slow version of Gloria. It does. That's uh, a good warning, though, that dating women with blue eyes or green eyes will be the death of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, they both. They, it's so funny that uh, you know that JM talks about Gloria because it does sound like them. Yeah, and it's a song with the same title as a Van Morrison Van Morrison song <laughs> that came just moments after them. That's pretty funny. I, I, I was thinking how strange it is that uh, Rolling Stone magazine was talking about the great white singers, and they mentioned both of these in the article. And Van Morrison and Fogarty? That's right. And they both started out close to the same place with this, uh, with what we just heard, and they ended up so far apart. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, this we're talking about the nineteen mid-1960s into the late 1960s, and what happens that sort of puts a stop in a lot of people's lives and and some musicians as well uh the vietnam war yeah and the draft and so um what happens doug with uh with some of these guys in the band well they know that their number's about to come up and they're about to be drafted and they dash off quickly to get signed up for other services that will uh protect you from the draft uh, John Fogarty has a friend that mentions the uh, Army Reserves, and and he quickly joins the Army Reserves. Yeah, to avoid getting drafted, getting drafted into the, I guess, the part of the Army that really does something. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, Clifford goes to the Coast Guard, Coast Guard Reserves, which I didn't know they had a Coast Guard Reserve, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> And during their six months of active duty, the the band is put on the back burner. When they get back into sort of band mode, they're working on a song. Well, that, he gets his uh, he gets his honorable discharge, and he's he doesn't even walk into the house. He's he after he reads the letter, he sits down and writes a song, 
called Proud Mary. Some Americans may be familiar with. <laughs> this is why they're not CCR yet yeah. at this point. They're still the Gollywogs. But he also, during I guess during that time, he's working on a song called Porterville as well. And that's the very last song they record under the name Gollywogs. It does not do anything. Um, but the reason it's important is it re- represents a new creative direction for the band, and it really for two reasons. One, it's the first song that John Fogarty writes all on his own without his brother's help. And he shifts to something that's more comfortable for him. He's He said, I didn't want to write about love anymore. I didn't write, want to write about a bunch of stuff I didn't know about. So I start inventing stories. I start making things about things I know and care about. And, and like swamps in Mississippi. Absolutely. And it becomes a, it, it, and that becomes a big focus for him. So he just changed the way he looked at songwriting. And it's important enough to where the band re-recorded it and released it on their first Credence album. Let's talk about their final name change. I guess it's not their <laughs> final name change because they, the two of the guys end up going under another name later on. But the yeah. final name change with the Fogarty brothers involved. So in 67, the Weiss brothers are looking to get out of the record business and they end up selling the label to Saul Zance, who had been working with them since 55. He's one of the guys that the, um, the blue velvets tried out for in front of. Yeah. He's an interesting guy. He's got a long hit. He was actually married to Charles Mingus's ex-wife. Mm-hmm. She worked for him first. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he actually produced um, or was part of uh, put it up some money or part of the production for one flew over the cuckoo's nest. The movie. Right? Yeah, yeah. He got into the movie, movie business. business. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, Fantasy ends up extending their their deal, and but part of that deal is they agree to a name change because Zans uh, felt that they needed something significantly more '60s rock and roll oriented, and the Gollywogs was just not cutting it. It sounded too cartoony, I guess, which it does. <laughs> it does. And so they, because the band hated the name anyway, they came up with Creedence Clearwater Revival. And there's three sort of components to that name. One is uh, a friend of Tom Fogarty's was named Creedence Newball, but it was spelled with one E C R E D E N C E. And they added the extra E to make it more like a creed. Creed. Or yeah. They're creed. The second thing was Clearwater came from a TV commercial for Olympia beer. And finally revival was supposed to have some connection to the band's renewed commitment to their work. Yeah. <laughs> it was weirder. It, uh, Cook described it as weirder than Buffalo Springfield or Jefferson airplane. Which, as a name. Buffalo I, Springfield's not that weird. No, I don't, I don't think so. Either. I don't either. Jeff, is Jefferson Airplane that weird? I don't think it's that weird. So, the band decides that their their first kind of big release under this new moniker for this label is going to be an old 50s song that was originally released by Dale Hawkins. Um, and they make it sort of an extended jam. Like, it's an eight-minute version of this song. Yeah. It wasn't eight minutes when it was initially released. And this song we're talking about is... Susie Q. Susie Q, yeah. Susie Q, baby, I love you. Susie Q. 
I don't think that song needs to be eight minutes long. No, no, no. Well, they split it up over two sides of the single when they released it. It was so long. <laughs> it becomes a big hit for them. And when, it, really, when they released their debut album, which is called Creedence Clearwater Revival, they, um, radio stations start picking up on that song and playing it. So it also, you know, helps the sales of, sales of that album. The following year, 1969, is sort of a banner year for this band, wouldn't you guys say? Yes, yes. Lots and lots of stuff happened. They released three albums during that year. They play Woodstock. They played uh, Ed Sullivan Show. They did play the Ed Sullivan Show. In 1969. Um, The the, the amazing thing, uh, this is something I think we need to stress. The amazing thing about them recording three albums is they were touring the entire time they were doing that, too. It wasn't like they were sitting around just recording albums. They were they recorded those albums while they were touring the country. Yeah, they were, and not just touring a little bit. No, <laughs> it's it's just ridiculous that he was able to write so many wonderful songs. One of the things I want to talk about about their live performances is is uh, John Fogerty once he takes over because he takes over the band once they become Creedence Clearwater. He's the sole singer. He's the I think one they they co-wrote he and Tom wrote co-wrote one song together and that was it. Yeah, Everything yeah. else that until the Mardi Gras album. Right, right, right. Yeah. Everything else he wrote, he had total control over the band. And he had this rule when they played live. No encores. No encores. They did not play encores. And I, I respect that because the, the encores are so um there may be in a time where they were genuine, but now it's it's well what's 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 funny about that is that ends up being one of the uh, bricks in the Creedence Clearwater revival wall, if you will, that when they when they go tour when they go tour the UK, um they the fans over there are going crazy for them. And they leave the stage and the other three guys are out there looking at these cra- this crowd going nuts, wanting more, and and um F- John Fogarty's like, Nope. Like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> we want to go out there and get some more of this this crowd love. What are you talking about? Yeah. He's like, no, we do not do encores. Anyway. Especially for limeys. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the way we feel about our lovely British listeners. No, it's not. And I was I was just I was out of hand. I was mad about something else. <laughs> so uh they their second album which is the first one released in 69 is Bayou country. And it features um, a bunch of songs that they'd been, that they'd kind of honed playing live. And one song in particular that Doug had mentioned earlier, proud Mary. Oh, proud Mary. Yes. That was <laughs> proud Mary. <laughs> and that song peaks at number two on the billboard charts, a, 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 a pattern that this band <laughs> yeah. will have the first of many number twos. <laughs> um, Dylan said that was the best song, his favorite single right. of 1969. Um, and then, of course, Ike and Tina Turner recorded it and uh, yeah, kind of made it their that's own. that's the one I remember, yeah. <laughs> kind of made it their you own know, from when I was a kid. Yeah. It reminds me of a song the, the band would write. Yeah. It is a remarkable song, and I have no idea where that comes from in his head. Yeah, he he said I read an interview with him where he's talking about when he's coming up with it. And he he heard the rolling, rolling, rolling part in his head. And he goes, I just knew that would sound good on the radio. I just knew it would work. Yeah. Well, he's well, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, it's got a weird little start to it. The yeah. Chord progression. Yeah, at the it very sounds like folk music. A, a lot yeah. of their music sounds like a folk tune that he's 
redo it, well, even some though of them are, it. yeah, but yeah. So that that album ends up peaking at number fifty two on the Billboard charts, and that's the album that has the last song that uh, John and Tom write together is a song called "Walk on the Water," and then they um, release another album, their third album, second album in nineteen sixty nine, called "Green, Green River. River," and "Green River." Is Bad Moon Rising and Lodi. Oh, I love Lodi. Yeah, so yeah. Green Green River's got as again. Sorry guys, when we talk about these albums, they all I mean, they, they all, all kind of get jumbled up. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Bad Moon Rising is a heck of a song. That is a fantastic um, song. And uh, and then Lodi is also a great song as well. Mm-hmm. So in between that album and their final album in 1969, Willie and the Poor Boys, they play Woodstock. In fact, they were the first, I think the first band that got asked to play Woodstock because they were so big at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Do y'all and, know where Green River is? No, where is it? Putacana, Puta Creek near Winters, California. Well, and that album. And when you hear Green River, it sounds like it's right in the middle of Mississippi. Yeah. That Didn't that album hit number one? I think it did. Yeah. So that's their first number one album. Mm-hmm. And uh, and like I said, they're they're huge at this point. So they get asked to play Woodstock. They're the first act signed for the event. And the reason why they picked Credence is the the organizers thought if Credence said yes, it'd be a lot, it'd be easier to get other bands to jump on board. And sure enough, that's what happens. They start following them. They're paid $10,000 and they're scheduled to play at 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, right between the Grateful Dead and the Who. Oh my God. So, what time do they um, actually go on? I wonder if there's this great story. Oh, they go on really late. Yeah, there's this great story. Fogarty says he says most of the audience was asleep despite the very loud set that included, you know, their songs like Born on the Bayou, Bad Mood Rising. He says, um, (laughs) he says he looks out at the sea of stone sleeping bodies, and then off in the distance, about a quarter mile back in total darkness of, of the night, he spots this one guy flicking his Bic lighter and calls out, Don't about it john we're here with you and he goes i played the entire show for that guy <laughs> which is pretty funny yeah. I they sim- were the headliner and they went on when nobody was paying attention yeah, yeah. that was funny i have a sim- they blame uh, the grateful dead they said the grateful dead took too long but yeah I think- other people said the grateful dead's equipment get all screwed up by the rain yeah which well, begs the question who will stop the rain? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what's interesting about that is, so they're the headliner. They play when the movie comes out. Again, John Fogarty and his uh, wanting to make sure what they do is as best as it could possibly be. He's not happy with the way their set sounded. So he refuses to let any footage of them be used in the film and refuses any of the sound to be put on their on the soundtrack. Is LP. That right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it's he does so much to keep his band from being popular. <laughs> it's well, it's remarkable. I mean it's, it's a testimony to how great the songs are that they the, all overcame yeah. his <laughs> decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the one decision about hey, um maybe we should just stick with my songwriting was probably the the one that was working. Yeah. But um anyway. Well, he he proved that. Yeah. yeah. So they end up finishing the year by recording Wooly and the Poor Boys, and that's released in October of 69, and it's, the, like I said, the last of those albums. Um, it goes to number one in the U.S. as well. 
And it's, like I said, I almost picked that album because it's just fan. It's a it's fantastic so album. Songs, it's yeah. got great songs on it. Yeah. I mean, it's got Down on the Corner on it. It's got Fortunate Son. I know you probably don't like that, Doug, but I love Fortunate I like Son. Fortunate Son. I don't know. Uh, just because I'm so rich, I don't know why y'all think I don't like songs. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, as we mentioned earlier, that just Midnight Special is just fantastic. You know, Rolling Stones only gave that one four stars. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, I love um, reviewing Rolling Stones poor reviews. Was a four star a poor review, though? Uh, it was poor that they gave it four stars, not I'm, that it's a poor review. Uh, I don't know. Uh, this album's too good for four stars. I, that's I, I don't disagree with that, but I mean, four stars isn't bad. It's not bad, but um, that's their second or third try. Yeah. Well, they make up for it in their review for the next album. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Uh, I may not be fair because I love making fun of the Rolling Stone reviews. <laughs> well, the Midnight Special on this album is it's just incredible. It's, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, the other interesting thing that happens in '69, sometime in '69, uh, they try to negotiate a better royalty rate with Fantasy, and Fantasy at the time, Fantasy Records was depositing money into Castle Bank and Trust, which was a Bahamas offshore tax shelter. <laughs> so. Uh, Instead of renegotiating their royalty rate, what um, Zance does is he gives CCR the opportunity to put their money into this tax shelter oh, as well. Gosh. So that's what they do instead of getting a, a, royalty, a royalty increase. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, essentially, that brings us up to Cosmos Factory. Well, one last thing I want to say is that Fogarty was... Not only had he taken over the songwriting, I, I've read articles where he took over. I mean, he played most of the instruments. Well, he would go in after they laid down the tracks yeah. and add stuff to it. Yeah. Or he'd take the background vocals off. And I, I, there's mixed stories. I've heard that he either took the background background vocals off and did and put his own on there, or they weren't allowed to sing in the studio just live, <laughs> the rest of the guys. Yeah. I've even there's, heard that he went in and did redid some of the drums, but... Huh. Maybe I would, I would believe I like. any of it. I, th I think the guy's a neurotic perfectionist. Yeah. And I also think that these albums are really good because he's a neurotic perfectionist. Yeah. This guy really needed to be on his own with uh, studio musicians. Yeah. And I, th I think his, his life would have been easier, but that's not how it worked out. No. I think... Uh, we're talking about an album that was four times platinum, mm -hmm. that was uh, in the number one position for... Nine weeks. Nine weeks. Nine weeks. Wow. And it's 1970, so there's... It's not like everybody was putting disco out or something like that. I right. mean, they're up against some heavy competition. Mm -hmm. And it's in the 413 on uh, <laughs> Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All. I bet days. I could... Find 300 albums that should be behind it. <laughs> I, I would probably agree with you on that. This this album sort of, um, you know, a lot of people talk about this as being their their greatest achievement. This is the album when people talk about CCR, they talk about this album. We're kind of representing what they do best and having all the best elements in the band really firing on cylinders. It's hard to argue with that. Mm -hmm. Well, when you chose this, I remember saying, "What is he doing?" In my yard. <laughs> and then I also remembering, well, at least he picked the right album. Yeah. Because I I think it is the best. And I 
There's a couple of reasons I'll, for that, and we'll get to those. But. I'll I'll let you feel uh, feel haughty about Rolling Stone just real quick, Doug. In their 2003 album, the greatest albums of all time, this album was 265. They bumped it in 2020 to 413. <laughs> well, I think a lot of that is PC stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine the, mo- the album drops that many places in 17 years, <laughs> but yeah. whatever. Come on, you got new stupid people working there. Let's, let's briefly just talk about the album cover, because we mentioned it, but we didn't really say what it was. It's <laughs> it's interesting. It's them on very, like, it's them in a studio. It's in, it's, I think it's that, the, I think it's, co- they're in they're Cosmo's factory. factory. Yeah. Do we, do Cosmo we, is the uh, drummer. The drummer, and he's on a bike. Why is it called Factory? Do you guys know? No. Well, there's two two stories about it. One is that um, one of the guys at one point says this beats working in a factory, so they always called their studio a factory. I think the second story is probably more precise, which is Fogarty made them practice so much it was like working, working in, a in a factory. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm guessing that's probably more the true story. But yeah, and and uh, anyway, keep describing it. It it looks like they're uh, laid back, chilling hippies. Or and, lumberjacks. Yeah, or lumber, <laughs> lumberjack hippies. And uh I got a feeling that's not at all what it was like in there. No, Corey, this is where I think tensions really started to kind of rise too mm-hmm. with the members of the band, especially with Tom. Yeah, yeah I think the, I just can't imagine Tom's difficult situation. You got your little punk brother mm-hmm. running everything. I, I I would not have been able that. That's and even, you're in the you're in the most successful rock band in the entire world. <laughs> and you don't get to do you and don't get to like you're getting ordered around that, yeah. by your little brother you know yeah. that's rough it, it's funny you mentioned crowded house but it's even more like crowded house because tim finn was uh i mean he was the guy for um for split ends. split ends yeah and then his young yeah, punk brother, brother comes along in. writes a pop tune that shoots them over the top and yeah. then, then he ends up leaving the band and his, <laughs> his younger brother takes over so yeah, anyway it's, it's hard being I, the older he wasn't, brother yeah he wasn't a young punk. I'm me just and that out me there. and James have struggled with <laughs> being the older brother all these years. Wish, but, um, um, successful. W- so Cosmo says one of the reasons he was put because he's front and center on this album. Fogarty's behind the drums on a motorcycle, I think, on the album cover. Yeah, and uh, and uh, according to people at the time, this confused the hell out of everybody. Nobody <laughs> knew who anybody was. But uh, the reason why uh, Cosmo's uh, up front is because uh, he says that Fogarty was tired of the limelight, and he was like, "You guys keep complaining about it. Have at it. It's yours." Huh. Again, I don't, you know, there's a lot of bad blood between these guys, so. You, you got to kind of parse. I, I understand that. Just like when they took our posters for uh, this is vinyl tap, they wanted me in the front and <laughs> have at it, Doug. Yeah. So this uh, every song, but the covers are written solely by Fogarty mm-hmm. on this. Yeah, and probably a good chunk of the music is played <laughs> by him as well. Yeah, I think that he. Yeah, he plays a lot of the instruments on here. Uh, this is probably. Uh, one of the people who should not be in a band. Eventually, he does not have a band. Yeah, and that's that's probably a good thing. Um, he's he's probably in the um, prop, probably in the Todd Rundgren uh, as far as personality goes. Yeah, um, we are now ready to go <laughs> into the album, and we start with Ramble Tamble. Tony, 
Yeah. What's tamble? <laughs> I don't know what is tamble. It rhymes with ramble. I think I looked it up, but I don't remember it. Anyway, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. I think you should. No, I, I, I started too early. I, that's a that's a over seven minutes long, uh, and uh, well, it's got that breakdown or yeah, it retards and then it goes very into weird break in the middle. It's almost like a. I love that break. In I the love middle. the break. I, I do too. I love the whole song. Album. I I think this is the perfect song to start this album off. It is. Every it's got every element that makes CCR such a great band. It's got that swampy yeah, bluesy it, it guitar riff. Like it's it, well, that whatever middle. it is that CCR has, you hear it immediately. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. And then then Fogarty doesn't sing; he immediately does that. Ooh, yeah, it's just yeah. oh, I love it! I love it! I love it! I love it! And I like that. I mean, that breakdown with the guitar part, and and then there's that weird piano that comes in that that uh-huh. i love that. it's it's really texturally interesting yeah. to me that middle part it's That's like a weird sort of pseudo psychedelic we, we should mention because they were anti-psychedelic they yeah. i mean fogarty was and then all the guys agreed to it when they were making music there was no substances involved whatsoever yeah. no um that's no drugs a, that's an no. interesting thing about this band for this period of time yep. is those those issues just aren't present. Well, yeah. and you, you look at the recordings of them, and they're they're clearly they're they're, 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 they're sober quickly. as can be. You yeah. know what it reminds me of? Buck Owens didn't drink, and the reason he didn't is because he saw. He, according to him, I saw what a damn fool it made other people when they were on stage and stuff. And he wanted to be control in control of what was going on. And Fogarty seems like the same type of guy, John Fogarty. Yeah, uh-huh. um, I got to remember. There's two Fogartys here. I can't keep. Yeah, but um, yeah. yeah. That's that is an interesting thing about this band that sets them apart. Uh, they the, are uh, not dabbling in psychedelic at all. Nope. They're, it's like they, uh, it's like they're back folk and, and blues, and they they've completely ignored the the late sixties uh, summer of love thing. Yeah. Well, despite being dominant during it's not the whole a lot period. of flowers and. It, no one's putting flowers in their hair. He, um, John Fogarty talks about how they weren't ever comfortable in that scene. Even though they're from the Bay Area, they were much yeah. more comfortable hanging out in this kind of junky dive bar than they well, were in these other sort of hippie psychedelic places. You know? Yeah, and that's exactly right. And we don't have any connections with Jefferson Airplane or Cosby, Stills, and Nash or The Grateful Dead. Uh, if you think about... Even the other well. bands we did, all those San Francisco guys were yeah, playing even, together. Even Chris Christopherson yeah. yeah. was Steve connected. Miller. Yeah. 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 None uh-huh. of these guys 
Commander like, Cody. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like they were not invited to the party. It's yeah, like they're, they're at that nerd table, and all of a sudden, <laughs> the nerd table takes over. It's, yeah. yeah, that nerd table at uh, in the uh, Animal House. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go over and push them at the, on the couch. <laughs> but I, I am going to say the drums, when they come in, just... I almost just it almost takes me out. He does when they get into that kind of breakdown part. It, it's a little different, but he's just such a time beater. And uh, yeah, what's well, the song about? <laughs> I haven't even. You know, what's funny is that usually occurs to me. And on this song, it, it got it. It's like it was a, an exception. Oh yeah, this song doesn't have to be about it. I think. I think if you. I mean, you quoted the lyrics at the beginning when you talked mm-hmm. about roaches in the cellar. I think it's about the government focusing on things that don't matter. Because he says at one point, there's an actor in the White House, which is kind of funny considering this was a, a decade before Reagan. Yeah. Um, but I think that's what it's well, about. He it's like really did not like Nixon. Yeah. He is. Um, um, but. Yeah. But the second, the, like the verse you didn't say about the things in the because the roaches in the cellar, um, uh, it talks about garbage on the sidewalk, highways in the backyard. I think it's all about like all these things are ha- all hell's breaking loose because the people who are supposed to be taking care of you aren't taking care of yeah. you. They're worried about other things. I think that's what it's about. I don't know. Hmm. It's difficult. I wonder what that's like. I, I want to say, I will say this about, about Fogarty, as much as I love him as a vocalist, I, uh, is there any, maybe Elton John. Is there anybody whose vocals are more misunderstood or misheard than probably John Fogarty's <laughs> vocals? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a good. <laughs> I mean, he just, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I tell you what I like about this song is it's not on the radio. Well, it's the only song, the uh, only original song on this album that wasn't a single. The yeah. only one. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, I mean, and, and people have called it the best song they ever did. Is what I, I, I really? Yeah, I've I don't that. agree. With, I don't. I don't think that, it's that, but, but I do think that the fact it's that fresh. I haven't heard it in twelve movies and had it drilled into yeah. my head if, when I'm playing pool at some place. Yeah, uh, it's just not always on the radio. Yeah, it makes me enjoy it, and I like. Uh, I think it's hard to make a seven minute song that. Everybody doesn't say needs to be shorter. Well, he even thought it. John Fogarty even thought it was too long. Well, mm. I disagree on this. On this I song, think I think it right. works. Yeah, and I like his guitar work. I, I like. Yeah, there's not. I can't complain about anything on the song. I love everything about it. Yeah, I don't. I this is. I have no complaints on this one it, except for the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about uh, y'all want to go see if we can complain about the next song? Sure. That's uh, before you accuse me. me. Yeah, an old Bo Diddley tune. Yeah, I can't believe Bo Diddley wrote that. It's a great song, and they do a very good version of it. I kind of like the band and uh, Eric Clapton's version of it a little more. But uh, Bo and, Diddley, and this is a great cover. Yeah, Bo Diddley's interesting to me because he's influences a whole lot of people, and I wonder if it's he pretty much founded that rhythm that it's just used like you just yeah. think everybody. Um, well, here's okay. So here's the question that we ask from time to time: Is this a necessary cover? I I don't think, like I said earlier, I don't think any of these are necessary. But 
what I'm going to say is that uh, Fogarty knocks us out of the park. I, yeah, I agree. I think he does. A, I, yeah, they're not necessary, and it's wonderful. And he could have so- done a different song, and it I would have been okay with it. You know, if he if he'd done a different cover, because he does a very good job with cover. I think he does. I can't. I can't imagine doing a better job on a cover than he does on this one. You know, I'm I'm with you on that. And the and the thing. This is the song. I don't know. Clapton's version is pretty good. <laughs> this is uh. This is a song. I when I was listening to it, I don't know. At some point, I was like, oh crap, that guitar solo is pretty mm-hmm. pretty nice yeah, on it. Yeah, it's good. Um, and he plays piano. Fogarty also plays yeah, piano he on plays this too. Piano. Yeah, he's got that that rockabilly piano. No, but it's I, I, it's I enjoy a, this one. Me too. Um, me too. Me too. And when you say. Does he need to be doing that? And I say, well, if he's John Fogarty, he needs to be writing songs. Right. Yeah. But if someone's telling me I have to put out two albums in uh, three, I mean, three, four albums, albums in two years, yeah. I'm going to say, oh, well, yeah. three in 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think the guy gets to do a, a cover yeah. under that kind of pressure. Yeah. And, and, and when he does covers, nobody can. Nobody can criticize. You can't. You can't product. complain about uh, it. We're going to complain about one in a little while. But. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know who ought to be. Uh, I know which song he's. Yeah. He's going. Of course, I know what he's. Gonna, he's going to be wrong, but that's okay. T. Yeah. Have you ever played in a traveling band? No, but if it, if they sounded like this, I wish I would have. Okay. God, that's fun. <laughs> so you're in a band and you're the lead singer, and then somebody comes up and does that. Yeah. You're screwed. Yeah. He is. is that that you, voice of his on this song is out of sight. He, this is this is where he shines. That, that, that's, just, that's what his voice was made for. And uh, I, I, what, one of the things I want to his voice is made though, for that other guys like Springsteen. He eventually got a voice like this, but it was from sheer hard, hard work. work. Yeah, yeah. This voice of Fogarty's, he didn't have to. He didn't have to achieve it the way Springsteen had to choose achieve his high. Uh, you know, he gets to the the peak of his range and he's screaming rather than singing, and it was manufactured. And he did a good job with it, but Fogarty, he just. I guess it's just playing in those uh, noisy places where well, he learned how to do this. I'm sure. But this is a great example of what his voice is for. You know, the thing I love about this song, so this is, you know, obviously it's autobiographical about what their last year was like, doing three albums, touring like crazy. But this song is not complaining about it at no, all. It's yeah. celebratory about, it's celebratory, right, about yeah. this. And it's I love, so that's great. One the, that's one of the things I love about this song. And I, you know what else is really cool? His the way that the he plays the saxophone mm-hmm. on this, the way the saxophone, the guitar, and his voice just all blend together like they're one instrument. Uh-huh. I, I he, really like the way this that is goes. one of the songs he came in after the basic tracks were laid down and added all that stuff to really? it. Um, yeah, um, this is the one. The that piano also, include, included. Yeah, this is the one that uh, Little Richard tried to sue him. Yeah. On. Oh, yeah. Let's let's talk about that. You can't talk about CCR without a lawsuit, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so it was. Good he golly, said, Miss Good golly, Miss Molly. Uh, Stu Cook's like, that's outrageous. It sounds more like Long Tong, Sa- Long Tong Sally than anything else. <laughs> that's what uh, I would have thought, too. But uh, <laughs> um, you know what? It's. it's <laughs> You know what it is? It's Fogarty's like channeling all that I know, stuff. That's it's what not I him saying, yeah. ripping off the song. I mean, if he was going to do it, he'd do a cover of it. You right. know, that's what's so silly about that. He well, that's up- one of the things I like about it so much is that it, it is kind of a throwback to the mid 50s, all that uh, rockabilly. It's really hard on, on uh, early hard. rock and roll and blues to say that someone's ripping somebody off. Yeah. Because I'm sorry, guys, it's just not that. But there's just not a lot of songs, not that much complexity yeah. like this in the '60s. No, there's not, and this is 1970. Yeah, um, and I mean, he ended up settling. They ended up settling out of court, and it wasn't yeah. Little Richard suing him. It was that whoever yeah, owned his well, yeah. owned his stuff, and um, and it was like years later, I think 1972 or something like that. Yeah. So this is another song that peaked at number two. <laughs> Yeah. And 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 what they did is uh, the singles they released on these albums were double double A side singles. So yeah. this 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 Who single was released rain? with "Who'll Stop the, the Rain." rain. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, talk about a one two yeah. punch. But yep. Yep. great song. Yeah. Very very I've good. This always, is one of my favorites. Always loved that one. Yep. One of my favorites. And I've always uh, I've always launched into it when nobody asked me to. <laughs> His. I just want, I know it's such a stupid thing, but the, nothing makes me happier. Well, there's lots of things that make me happy, but this is one of the things that makes me happy is the way he goes, yeah! yeah I just, yeah. I just love traveling, it. Yeah, playing in a well, traveling band. This is, yeah, he's so celebrated. Yeah, it's so yeah. joyful. Yeah. That's great. It's, it's probably one of the top 10 most obnoxious people on the planet. I can tell you guys uh, <laughs> if someone ever says the word 737, yeah. I will launch into this immediately <laughs> without anyone requesting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he funny. knocked it out of the park with this song. That's I really love it. Did. Yeah. Ooby dooby. drums on that nothing they're a little uh light i guess i don't know they just don't sound quite as, i don't know i, I don't it, think there's anything wrong with the, it, with the drums it, this on is that. the this isn't the most egregious of the of the drum part the, but this this song i, is I what, like this song a lot this is another uh, cover, cover it? yeah a well, roy orbison song this well it was before roy orbison it was done by yeah. uh texas boy this was why before, was that, wait, wait, wait. before roy orbison it was done by a texas boy well, another texas boy <laughs> wasn't this written in uh north you know, clinton club did you say did this uh yeah no just <laughs> So there was two guys from North Texas wrote it. Uh-huh. They just decided they wanted to write a song. They got a six-pack okay. and wrote it just on a lark. Okay. That's pretty good with just one six-pack. <laughs> and then they uh, they gave it to Rod Barkley. He was actually a, another student, at, at, mm-hmm. and he had a band, and they gave it to him. And he, he did it, and he recorded it. And then they took the recording and gave it to Norman Petty in Clovis, New Mexico, and Norm Petty loved it and gave it to Roy Orbison. The person who made a hit out of it. Yeah. Well, I, Norm Petty is famous for Buddy Holly. Yeah, that's right. He's, I, he's one of the always been Holly. amazed about 
uh, Clovis, New Mexico, having uh-huh. such an important. We need role. to go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, the thing I I love just thinking it's it's kind of cool to think about this song being sung by Roarson and then being sung by John, John Fogarty. Fogarty. Yeah. You know, because they both do great versions of it, but they're so. I mean, you couldn't get more 180 degrees in terms <laughs> no. of vocals. If if you're going to sound like Roarson, you get the brother to sing. You get yeah. Tom Fogarty to two sing. Two great great singers yeah. who couldn't be more. Far apart, but I love uh, Roy Orbison's very. I love that little stop start. Yeah, well, and again, the solo on this song is fantastic. Yeah, again, this this is where Fogarty shines. John Fogarty shines on his guitar playing is just it's exactly what that. Yeah, it's really really good. Are we gonna be looking out your back door? Next song. Turn that off. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is such a good song. Okay, I just have one thing to say about this song. Shut up. <laughs> this, I, if, well, if, you, gonna... if you're going to say anything, but I can't listen to that song without rewinding it. I, I, I just all I got it's to say is shut not, up. I, yeah. I, my first line in my notes is Doug. What do you say to people who don't like this song? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you don't have to wonder anymore. Well, you know um, what it's uh, written about? It's yeah. A Dr. Seuss book. Yeah, it's based on a Dr. What I Saw on Mulberry Street. Yeah, Because he wrote it for his kid. Of course, yeah. idiots think it's about drugs. Anytime you write something for a kid, they think it's about yeah. drugs. Um, but he wrote about for his kid. the Magic kid. Dragon. I, I, I love... Well, I think that might actually be about <laughs> drugs, actually. But but Lucy in Disguise wasn't. Yeah. Uh, or Lucy in the Skies. Yeah. Sorry, I slipped there. Yeah. Um, That's, we forgive you. Uh, I'm an Austin boy, so. I'll, I'll uh, tell you what. I don't care what it's about. <laughs> it's This is a perfectly realized song, in my opinion. This is, one of, the, this is the, one of the few perfectly realized It songs. could have been screwed up so yeah, easily. It, it easily could have been I love the way it starts with uh, honk, 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 yeah. crunch, crunch, crunch. And, not, it, and he does it. He doesn't polish it up, and yeah. it could have killed it to polish it, it. It's it's easily one of the most iconic beginnings of any rock song ever, is it not? No, yeah, yeah, and just everything is. You can't tell one instrument from the other. That's one of the things I like about it. So well, and and it's the, the guitar it, and the drums are almost lock sync. And there's a dobro on this. Yeah. Yep, yeah. a beautiful um, dobro. So the dobro is something that he's holding on the cover of um, one of their previous albums. But he, this is the first song he ever played it on. Yeah. Was this well, song? He, did a, he knocked it out of the park. Of course, it's an homage to the Bakersfield sound and the it great, is. the yeah. great Buck Owens. Yeah, the great, great Dude. Buck Owens. I'm, did Buck Owens ever cover this? I don't know. That's a good question. A good sure, question. sure. He should have. Um, one of my favorite things when Fogarty's talking about this song is he says, um, you know, he's writing it for his song, and he says, I just, or his son, he goes, I just knew he would love hearing me go doot, 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 looking out my back door on the radio. He's just, that's, he just had this thought of his kid hearing that with a big smile on his face. And so for a guy who's so like, you know, hospital yeah. corners about everything in the studio, just that idea when he's writing a song could bring so a smile to my face. The, the reason everybody thinks this is about drugs is because he 
takes the magic spoon mm-hmm. and uh, what a, do you say to that? Flying spoon, right? Flying spoon. I'm sorry. I don't know. It's a kid's song. Is there something in that Dr. Seuss deal about a flying spoon? I can't I remember. Don't remember. My mom you, if you pull out know. spoon, people are going to think drugs right away. Yeah. I used to be the camp director of these Boy Scout camps, and I can remember when it was all over, <laughs> I would come home, and you'd be about 458 hours short on sleep, and I'd walk in. I'd go to the store, and I'd... I'd, I'd go to the blockbusters and rent all the Sopranos videos they had, and then I would go get a pizza, <laughs> and then I would lock myself in my room and turn the air conditioner down to sixty-five <laughs> after after two and a half months of just sweating my guts out and sleeping only about five hours a night, and I would just indulge. And this is what that song reminds me of. I, I can imagine him coming in from tour. And locking the door, going to his back porch, and I just yeah watching his kid have fun and just relaxing. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is this was also used in a movie. So you've been using several movies, but to the best effect in the Big Lebowski. There's a scene uh-huh. in the Big Lebowski where um, he gets his car back. And he's driving down, driving down the street. <laughs> and it's because he's got Cosmos Factory as yeah, the cassette in the car. Right, that's right. And is and this song. And when they do that, that bridge, which I love, that you know, dun, dun, where it's stuck, jump uh-huh. kind of stuff. They do these jump cuts, and it's perfectly down, down, matched. Down, down. Um, yeah, this uh, to quote you, Doug. This song is irresistible. Uh, this oh, is this is this song. Tony's favorite song on it, the album. It's not my favorite, but it is really no. It's wow. close, close, close to my favorite. Wrong. This is one of my favorite songs they've ever done. It's one of my favorite songs they've ever done too. But it's it's my favorite Credence song. It's 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 just remarkable. It's 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 one of my, you know, it's one of my favorite songs. Tom Tom Fogarty thought it was too country for them, <laughs> which I don't understand. Cotton Fields is significantly more country yeah. than this. Yeah, Why would yeah. he? Choose well, this I mean, song. I mean, we're, at a period of we're at a period of time where that line between country and rock's being yeah. ignored by most people. Yeah. yeah, and he's trying to do the Bakersfield zone. I, I could see the birds doing this. So I don't. Parsons that's doing. a good question. Yeah, why the hell hasn't everybody on earth copied this song <laughs> or the, done a done a version of it? This song. You know what the what the this is another double A side single. You know what the other song was. Yeah. It's uh, who stopped the rain? All as as long as I can see the light. Oh, really? And you imagine that that is oh that single? That's that, like a Penny Lane oh, Strawberry Field geez, single yeah, almost. Really? You know? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. amazing. It's amazing. The beauty of the Penny Lane Strawberry Fields combo is that they're about the same subject matter. Just yeah. Two yeah. Your yeah. two favorite songwriters taking a different take. No, on that's, it. that's yeah. true. That's, that's true. true. Anyway, yeah, I could go on and on all about right, this song. Ladies and gentlemen, we apologize for uh, oozing all over that <laughs> great song. Do we have another song here, T? Oh, you're the host. We are going to run through the jungle. doesn't sound like him to me really i'm gonna agree with doug on that um i i mean his voice sounds like but this doesn't sound like a song from him the way the others do 
I've, it's it's uh, darker. You're, you're, are you talking about subject matter or musically? I think musically, this sounds like a CCR. You couldn't get closer no, to a CCR. I, it sounds I don't swampy, disagree, but, yeah, but you right. have that that intro. Yeah. Well, that yeah. Like with something the, he wouldn't do. And there's a darkness in this song that I don't hear in the other songs. And having said that, let me say this is remarkable songwriting. It's an exceptionally great song. There's something sunny about Fogarty that I don't hear in this one at all. I, I, I get that, but he does delve into some darker themes. He does. Um, and, and usually he seems like an intruder when uh, he does that. Uh, On this song, he seems like a he, master of the art. Oh, I see what you're saying. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I guess I'm thinking about, I don't know if you guys watched him during the pandemic at all, but Fogarty would do these little things where he would just, he would just play, like he'd start, he'd release a video of him playing a couple of Creedence songs, just him and a guitar. And they were, you're exactly right, Doug. They were so, they were just joyful. There was something about him that exuded that. Uh So I can, I, I get exactly what you're saying now. I never really thought about it, but, um, yeah, that makes sense. I I I really like this song. I, I think it's excellent songwriting and just the the, the well, you drums, can tell the drums take me out of it. it yeah. It's almost like this should have been something that the drums should have been something different than they were. It, it sounds the drums almost sound like a, one of those drum machines where they hit the clap on the on the the clap button. And to me, is there something about it? And then the 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 way the toms come in, they're just not. It's like, come on, we got to have something bigger than that. And it's just, but the guitar, the, the swampy guitar playing, I love. Um, it's messy. I like that. Fogarty says he's channeling Howling Wolf on this song. That's what I can. I can hear that. Yeah, I can. I can hear that. And yeah, wish he had his. When you say Howling Wolf, I say that may be some explanation for how he sings. He he may have uh, that that there may that be harmonica. more Howling Wolf. No, I'm talking about Howling Wolf's voice in his heart. Well, I know, but just the, the, when that harmonica comes oh, in, which, I, which that was Howling put on Wolf. post post production. Yeah. Um, yeah. One song back is looking out my back door, <laughs> which is as far away from this as you yeah. can get in his calend- in his catalog. Well, you know what this song's about, don't you? Yeah, Doug? well, sure. It's not about the Vietnam War. Which is surprised right. me. I, I thought it was. About I think everybody thinks it's yeah. about the war, but it's not. No. The, what what Fogarty said is, is about the amount of guns we have in the oh, States. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He's like, I'm a gun owner, but man, things have gotten crazy. That was um, 1970. <laughs> what, what's, what's interesting about this song is uh, The Devil's on the Loose was actually um, taken from Phil. Phil. There's this journalist named Phil El, El, I'm sorry, Phil Elwood. Who misinterpreted a line from um, previous song down on the corner? Previous song of theirs, where it says uh, the line is "Doubles on kazoo" is the line from that, <laughs> and he thought he said the devil's on the loose, and he wrote that in an article. And Fogarty saw it, and he's like, "Oh, that's I got to use that in a song now." Devil's on the loose, so he. Uh, that's hilarious. This is Tom Fogarty's favorite Creedence song. Really? Yeah, he said, and when he describes it, he says it's like a movie. Um, yeah. And he goes, it never changes key, but somehow holds your interest the entire time. Well, yeah, not any modulation no, at all. It's, it's all, it's one chord, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I'm not sure there's another song that's been used this, in more movies than this one. Yeah. Um, 
just again to bring up used in Vietnam movies, as you said. Yeah, yeah, but it's not about the war. Uh, To bring up the specter of lawsuits again, this was a song uh, that um, caused uh, Fogarty some trouble later on in his solo life when Saul uh, Zanz um, said that old man man down down the the river or down the road. I mean, oh uh, yeah, that's right. Was was ripping this off that he sued Fogarty for plagiarizing himself. (laughs) Thank, thankfully, yeah. thankfully, he won. The Fogarty won. Well, you know lawsuit. how he won, right? He didn't. He play the two yeah, songs. Yeah, he got the guitar out and played for the jury and said, yeah. "See how different they are." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, how petty do you have to be? Though? But they do sound alike. They, they do. do. Um, I like this one the, a lot better than old the man cold, down the road. The chord progression is. Uh, I think. They're oh both. yeah, there's actually a chord progression. I think in they're. Old man I think they're the both great songs. Yeah, personally, but whatever. Anyway, um, it's a. It's a powerful song, and it is the opposite of the one that comes before it, and very different than the one that comes after Even it. though it was on the single with the one that comes after it. Yeah. And we're flipping the album over, by the way. And we're going to flip over, and... Song one's going to be a hit. Up around the bend, <laughs> and I love it. When I was six years old, this was my favorite song ever, ever huh. at the time. Yeah. It's such a great song. You yeah. know what this song has in it? Claps. Hand claps. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. But that guitar, my gosh. No, that, that guitar. one I, of the greatest guitar uh, intros Again, ever, yeah. iconic as all get yeah. out, you know? And, and I don't know how I got that sound either. I mean, it's a little bit of a... He, you know, he wrote this on a... He was riding his motorcycle through the California hills, and this just came to him, this Jeez. song. It, and it, I love it. It's so upbeat and positive. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's funny that... Come on uh, a ride, a win, going up... Run a through the jungle comes between these two. Yeah, that's yeah. true, because they're it both so... such... It's... It makes me feel like I'm in a uh, airplane taking off when it hits the jets and you're sucked to the back of the street. <laughs> it just has that great momentum behind it. And yeah. again, it's broken record. Fogarty as a guitarist is, yeah. I mean, his vocals and his guitar playing on the song are just outstanding. Yeah. He, uh, his, he nailed it again. I wish we were talking to a bunch of people who didn't already know all these songs <laughs> yeah um that's the only that's the and, only downside is and, we're talking about great songs everybody already knows that's about. true and the other the other great thing about the song is the way it the, the, just the way it ends it's you know yeah. i just it, i even like the dude i love it i love it it's so good mm-hmm. all right let's move on everybody's getting tired of us talking about how wonderful he is my baby left me That's fun stuff. Yep. A great author, 
Crudup. Arthur Big Boy Crudup. Man, he has written a bunch the, of good songs. This was movie. most famously covered by Elvis. Elvis. This is the one cover that doesn't quite work for me 100%. Really? Yeah, I, it, it sounds, it's a great song, and it's, it, it's, it's a good performance, but it doesn't sound like Fogarty's given his all on You want to know something strange? I think this should have been on Willie and the Poor Boys for some reason. Huh. I, it seems like it just would have worked. Maybe. With, with the other I, stuff this is doing. It's funny. I don't, I don't know why, but this is the only cover when I hear it, I'm like, yeah, I think I'd rather hear the Elvis version. Well. I like the Elvis version. It's, uh, it's probably because he's... Not getting far away from Elvis. And that may yeah. be it. It's maybe you're, that you're it's... You're thinking, well, since you're doing it that way, yeah. you yeah, might, might as well, well hear Elvis. Yeah. That may be it. It's just, it's I, I, again, I don't hate this song. I don't skip the song, but it's the one, you know, looking at it yeah. critically, it's the one cover that just seems a little bit less than the other ones. And, one and I know I would, it's not the one you're talking about, Chan. One of the, one of the things I would say about it is got to be so good at covering songs that... When you do one that well, it doesn't sound like a good cover. Amen. Yeah. I think you're yeah, right about he's that. Just, he nails it. Yep. Yeah. But he's nailed so many other things mm-hmm. before we're not impressed. I mean, it's fun. It's a fun song. I mean, yes. I could almost see that he wrote it. After hearing Traveling Band, yeah. I could say, well, he probably wrote this. You know, yeah. But he, yeah. We have a little known <laughs> tune here that I think y'all will like. <laughs> This is the one song I'll agree. The drums are a little out of place. Yeah, it's just not necessary. Just, I think it's interesting that the song's as fast as it is. I do too, and but I do like the song. I just this is I a, wish this it had is been done. One better. of the greatest songs of the decade. I, I I think this is not this is not my second because I said there's two songs. This is probably third my third favorite song on this album. But it may be my favorite song he's written, if that makes any sense. I, Lyrically know, it, it, and everything it's, it's about great, it. It's a great, great song. It, it's I mean, incredible. He, yeah, it's he, absolutely it's, incredible. It's one of his best songs. Yeah. It may be, like you're saying, it may be his best song lyrically. And I, th- I think it is his best song. The chord progression is cool. Um, it's, it's about disappointment and all those people that think government's going to fix things. Well, he was inspired by Woodstock. Yeah, well, he's, yeah. he's, he's sitting out there watching. Sounds them. like he's talking about when they were out there, and yeah, they're all pulling together to get out of the rain, and yeah. they're trying well, to climb, get under the tower. I didn't, I didn't know this, but I read that this inspired Dylan to write um, "Shelter from the Storm." Really? Yeah, what a great song, man! Yep. It did nothing else. Again, topped out at number two. <laughs> it, and I, I would like to know all the other songs that came out that year, and I bet they disappear. This song will I never. Guess go let away. it be was seventy. Yeah, and, um, and, and here's the thing: when you you know you're talking about his voice and all this stuff, 
you, this shows just how emotive he can be yeah. when he's singing. You this know? is one of his best vocal this performances. Is no, there's no strain on his voice no, on this one. He's, no, yeah. absolutely not. And it's, yeah. it's and he'll stop the rain. That's a great metaphor. Mm-hmm. He's he's tying together the rain that they experienced at Woodstock mm-hmm. with all the dreams that the suckers are buying into with the new war on poverty, war on poverty, and the Great Society, and they, none of it changed a damn thing. And uh, and the, the the thing I like about this is it's a song. I mean, it's it's a. What I mean, what, what, what I mean is, and we're listening to we an album. Done, we should have done a song. Okay, before. Well, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Yeah, here's what I mean. It's like every. It's it's like a folk song. I mean, you you sing yeah, everything. It, I know what you're saying. He's not. He's he, anybody he's, could anybody could sing this it. song. Right? It, oh, I see. It, it yeah. Does not, it does not require his remarkable voice. Right. It just. But it adds uh, so much it to it. It does add. So Why much didn't Joan Baez ever do it? That's a good know. question. Who knows? I bet she did at one point. It's a it's a remarkable song. Um, well, this it's is been confusing done because Bonnie Tyler did it is, on her. <laughs> I'm going to say that it's my favorite Creedence Clearwater Revival song, and my second favorite song on this album. Well, it's it's. And I, I don't know how that works. That's I why I said it's my. I think it's the best song. It's my favorite song by him, but it's my third favorite song on the album. So. <laughs> Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you're looking for consistency, <laughs> we're yeah. going to have to recommend another podcast. No, he, it's, it's, it's just a fantastic song. Let's get to it's, J- it's one of those that's uh, in heavy rotation on uh, classic rock mm-hmm. and roll radio yeah. that I never get tired of, unlike most of them. Should we get to J.M.'s favorite song on the album? Let's do J.M.'s favorite. <laughs> I don't know where to start on how much I dislike this song. I, I first mm. of all that he did it because there is a perfectly good version that was done <laughs> not that long before this one. Second of all, the drums they're terrible. Um, there is the guitar playing is terrible, and I I I don't even like Fogarty's vocals on. Oh it. man, you like are so wrong like, about that. It sounds like he has his butt. <laughs> clinched as much as he possibly can and oh my god were you uh, listening to the same song we just listened to for a lot of us keep our butt clenched jm why is your so luke's i i I will i will grant you this song is overly long i get what you're saying about the drums i get what you're saying about it didn't need to be minutes long i get what you're saying about it didn't need to be a song that needs to be it didn't need to be recorded again after marvin gated any anybody needs to uh Argue about the fact that it's eleven minutes long. That is too long. Yes, it's not. But it's not a song that needs I, to be you, jammed on. You, but you listening to just that snippet of him singing for you to say what you said about yeah, his voice that's is where bizarre. You, that's to me. where you're wrong. It's, no, his I voice think sounds is great. Like, it's, I think it's, like, he, I think it's, it's, he sounds like he's trying to audition for oh uh, my lord a, a, a mafia movie for me. Just the way that his he, his voice his so, voice is is uh, what uh, it needs to be. Honest, absolutely. Yeah. Who did the first version of this? 
That was Marvin Gaye. I don't think Mar- I don't think Marvin Gaye sang the first version of this. Uh-huh. Who? It's it's beautiful. Smokey Robinson. Smokey Robinson did the first version of this, and uh, he nailed it. Marvin Gaye nailed it. Fogarty nailed it. Except he didn't stop in time. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm just I'm I'm still dumbfounded. The, so this is a song that I've always sort of felt luke lukewarmy about. So I get what you're saying, but listening to it for what we're doing and and actually hearing his vocals, uh, that's all. Once I I focused on those, that's all I could hear with the song was uh, his vocals. I, I don't like the drums. I don't like the guitars. I don't like anything about this well, song. They, uh, the way he did it, I think because I dislike that. Those strings, that, the way that it was done with by Marvin Gaye, which is the one that I that Mar the Marvin Gaye version's it's great. It's, it's wonderful. wonderful. We're not taking and away from that version. <laughs> Marvin Marvin Gaye's a wonderful singer, and he did a great deal with this. James right about the drums. James wrong about the voice. Yeah, uh, and the guitar. I I, I think uh, Fogarty is a great guitarist, but nobody can bear up to eleven minutes of covers on this i think i can prove the point on the drums and Do you have them isolated no but i have something that's nearly as good i feel like i shouldn't do this because once i do this the people that hear this are never going to be able to unhear it again the cymbals and when i play this and you hear the cymbals you're going to go oh no and it's going to be hard for you to listen to uh, the full song again without okay. hearing the cymbals well, let's get to it. that are completely out of control. It's like the cymbals had pictures of John Fogarty uh, that were in, where he was in a compromising position. And they said, <laughs> unless you let us play a dominant role in the last half of the song, we're going to show these pictures to everyone. All right. Let's hear it. Now, <laughs> this is why Peter Gabriel's said no made symbols on any of my albums. Yeah. I love, I love symbols because you, you know because here the symbols are a crutch. If you talk to any good drummer, they'll tell you symbols are a crutch. If you you can't come up with a that was a more than a crutch. Yeah, that that was his artillery. Yeah. <laughs> I, really, I never thought cymbals were a crutch. I mean, one of my favorite things is listening to Stuart Copeland play the cymbals. Well, he's a great, yeah, he's, so, but he, he yeah, can do other stuff. We're talking they're about a different, different caliber of drummer with Stuart Copeland. Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> Stuart, yeah, Stuart Copeland Look, can play. He plays high. I, th- I think we all agree the song needs to be about six minutes shorter. Uh, it needs to be, a, <laughs> no, it needs to be seven and a half minutes shorter. I'll tell you what I used to do. <laughs> I used to connect this to Suzy Q. Oh, yeah? Big, long covers by CCR that didn't need to exist. I think Suzy Q is much worse than this. Really? Yeah. They both could be much shorter. Mm-hmm. And my extraordinarily gifted songwriter and singer doesn't need 
to spend this much time well, on that's these That's what songs. I don't understand. Like, why you recognize that this is a concise song. I mean, it is a very concise song. Could why? Be. Why would you do this? Why would gotta, you, you got to put out three albums in one year. Yeah. I, I he's trying it. to. He's, and, and but that's if you're a good songwriter, you should realize well, He's probably thinking about what a good guitar player he is. Oh, right. I mean, I can understand that. I've I've played leads that nobody on earth ever wanted to hear. <laughs> we we all we all have our songs that we feel are way too long and boring and like Layla. Oh, yeah. I didn't say Layla, did I? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I I I would agree that. Uh, part of Layla's too long, but the outro should go on for about five more minutes. Oh, yeah. you're, trying to, you're just poking the bear. <laughs> well, let's get right. to the highlight. Yeah, let's let's end this album on a great. Uh, is great this Tony's note. favorite song? This is my favorite song. Well, I had originally picked this as Tony's second favorite song. Well, you just flipped him, and I'm very confused. Long as I can see the light. In case anybody was thinking Tony didn't pick the right record, what a way to end the album! Um, I love it, this. It There's is no other song that can, could end the album. I, yeah. I this is a, this is honest God truth. It is hard for me to hear that song and not tear up every time I hear it. I get goosebumps every. I've heard that song a million times, and I, I still get goosebumps every time I hear Fogarty sing it. Every time I love this song very very much. I love Fogarty's vocals on it. I love his keyboard. You love the drums. <laughs> I hate the drums, and I really wish he, he does a you know the sax parts really good. I really wish he would have got like some Alan Toussaint sort of backing, <clears throat> big ass horn section and a Hammond organ thrown in there. There, in there is a version of him that he did. Like I said, he did these videos during the pandemic of it's just him sitting down at the piano singing the wow, song. Wow, that's and great. it's just. Yeah. God, it's just great. His if this I hear this song and I think this is what John Fogarty was born to sing. This and song is remarkable. It's a remarkable song. I, uh, when I hear this, I think, how could he sing this song as well as he does and still be white at the end of the song? <laughs> he sounds. Well, the drums are just. Uh, why His, could he get like? Why, why are we talking about the drums? Or just talk about that voice? He's he's so outside of rock and roll with this. He is so into the greatest gospel singers of all times while he's singing this. It's just. It's I can just, see my yeah, my Hala Jackson. I, can, I, I just I don't put, hear a white guy singing this I'll song. I'll put that heart wrenching yeah that yeah, he does yeah. in the song up against any vocalist on the planet. It's I mean, just he is outside you know what his genre pulling and, this off. When he's what I love about that yeah is that it's not the end of it. He keeps no, going yeah. after that. And I, I that 
because he would just end it on that. And yeah. just the yeah. you know, I I I I'd cr- grab this snippet. It's like, guess I've seen it at old. Tra- All right, guess I've got that old traveling bone because I feeling I this feeling won't leave me alone. But I won't. I won't be losing my way. No, no, no. As long as I can see the light, I just, just do great. And yeah. then he's yeah. I, mean, I can't even do it. I just no, mangled I mean, it. No, but. I mean, uh, yeah. He he. Knocked. I'm I'm trying to th- make a list of white guys that could pull this off, and it's maybe, maybe Van, Van Morrison. Morrison. Yeah. Maybe maybe uh, Bob yeah. Seger could if somebody coached him and told him uh, what he was up to. But not many. I mean, no. this sounds. I wish Otis Redding would have done it. That would have been. Otis Redding could have Wilson Pickett. I mean, yeah. it's just incredible song. This yeah. this is the reason I picked this album. Really, well, this song. I understand that. I'm sit- when I was trying to figure it out, I was like, I want to talk about this song because this song just it's like I don't I don't know why it affects me the way it does, but I it's such a I have such a physical reaction to this song. To me, it's just it's. Fogarty showing off everything he can do. Yeah, and he, he's a but great. I, a I don't great like song. the I don't like the term showing off because I feel like he's a little bit. Well, um, yeah, it's he's, all it's, he's he's a little bit separated from the song itself. Yeah, it's when you guys talk. It's like when you guys so channeling when you're talking about Van Morrison mm-hmm. and how he chants this stuff. I understand it with this song. Yeah, you know, yeah. I understand. I don't, I, yeah, I, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Is I don't think he gets full credit for this. I There's think, something I else think going this on. This is coming from beyond him. Yeah. Which is the greatest thing I can ever say about a performer is uh, if something's coming from outside of them, from beyond them, I, I think that's important. Yeah. 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 All right. That's like, the last song on this whew. album, ladies and gentlemen. And I, it's a I, doozy. I mean, just even I hearing that what, snippet, I'm a little weak in the knees. I know. I don't, I don't know how we're supposed to continue after. Uh, all well, those great songs. And the sad thing is the continuation ain't real real good. <laughs> Tate, would you like to tell us about uh, the remarkable uh, fall following the remarkable climb? Well, the next album they do is um, Pendulum. And that's, is that the last one with Tom? That's the Tom last on one it? with Tom on it. And it's um, the last one where Fogarty, John Fogarty has full control. Right. And so Tom Tom Fogarty decides he's had enough, yeah. and he skips out on the band. And they're a trio at that point for the last album, Mardi Gras. We already yeah. talked about how that that album is considered one of the worst albums by a major group ever. I mean, You're talking about Mardi Gras, Mardi yeah. Gras. Yeah. So on this, they basically they all, everybody got to sing, everybody got to write. Yep. Yeah, yeah, And um, I got ladies and gentlemen, we do give personal help advice every now and then. And uh, if you find yourself in a band with John Fogarty, you should always opt not to write <laughs> songs and not to sing. Well, you know, the thing is, uh, what what plagued John for the vast majority of his career after the band, because Mardi Gras was the last thing they did, and then he they broke up, is, um, you know, Saul, Saul Zantz... Um, made a lot of money off of this band. He was evidently able to upgrade the studio. He added a couple of new buildings uh, to his house. Um, and, uh, and he bought a bunch of jazz labels, like small jazz labels. I mentioned he produced, he produced the, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And so Fogarty's like, Hey, you know, you seem to be showing a lot of positive stuff from our, what we're doing for you. I mean, I, I want to say, I think this is true. 
they sold more albums for that label than the label did the previous 20 years before they Jeez. were signed to it. Yeah, it wouldn't, so wouldn't he, surprise me at all. He wanted to get paid for that. And uh, and he wanted to to read like renegotiate the royalty rates and and get some you know s- some piece of the masters and stuff and Zant, and Zantz refused to do it he refused yeah. to budge and so Fogarty boy what a stubborn guy he yeah. is he 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 leaves he wants to, he's shopping around and the only way he can get out of his contract is David Geffen has to, has to um buy him out has to buy it so yeah. he, um. Geffen was the, uh, uh, so he buys him out, um, and, uh, it buy Fogarty's comp, but what Fogarty does is he forfeits all future royalties, um, to his back catalog. And then he does this weird thing where he says, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to play that stuff ever again. And goes, I think until 87 before he ever plays another Credence song live. And, uh, the funny thing is the band actually, uh, re- reconstituted. <laughs> they, well, they no. Well, they reunited as a band a couple of times in the late seventies. Um, Fogart, Tom Fogarty wanted to get the band back together. They had a meeting in his house, and the, Stu, Tom, and Doug all agreed to. Of course, John said he didn't want to have anything to do with them. Um, and but they did reunite in in nineteen eighty at Tom's wedding um, when he remarried. Uh, John Stu and Doug all attended their uh, and in ninety three and John Stu. Um, John Fogarty, Stu, and Doug all attended their 20-year high school reunion, and they actually got up on stage and played for a couple hours. Um, and they want they ended with Proud Mary. Uh, he said, I'm only going to do this if I can end with Proud Mary. In 1987, he's at the Palomino Club in North Hollywood to see Taj Mahal play. He's trying to be low-key, and he notices Bob Dylan sitting in the corner also trying to be low-key. So he goes <laughs> over there, and he sits down, and then... Uh, Harrison shows up. George Harrison shows up. <laughs> wow. So the word eventually gets to Taj Mahal that the three of them are in the crowd. So he gets them to come up on stage and and perform. And and uh, Dylan and Harrison play a couple of songs. All three of them play Twist and Shout. And then Dylan says, you got to do Proud Mary. And Fogarty's like, I'm not doing that. He goes, listen, if you don't do it, everybody's going to think it's a Tina Turner song. <laughs> so he does it. He does it. And the crowd goes crazy. And he ends the, he ends the song with Take That, Tina. Um, <laughs> and that's what started him to start playing his songs again. So on that on the, on the his solo tour for, the, um, for his solo album, Blue Moon Swamp, which was that same year, I think, or maybe the year after that. Uh, singing after that. He starts, playing, he starts playing Creedence songs again live. He doesn't get control of his catalog until i think january of this year is that when that happened right that happened huh i think so it might be sooner than that but i I think it was january this year but his brother died horribly horribly but the last words that he ever said i know this is john fogart so john and tom had a major falling out Mm -hmm. and it was over zans Mm -hmm. and tom fogarty with the last words he ever said to john fogarty on his deathbed when John had just come to see him, I don't think they'd spoken in a long time. Right. What's his name? Zans is a. It's my great, best friend. Is my best friend. That's right. That's just heartbreaking. That's just. Yeah. Now, I heard that he was dying of uh, complications from AIDS from uh, blood, blood transfusion. Blood transfusion. Yeah. 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 He, he had blood transfusion that was contaminated. He had a heart. He had a back uh, surgery. Mm-hmm. Caused him to need a grandfather. A uh, couple of other things that are really just kind of a petty thing. So um, in 93, they're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
Stu and Doug are told they're not going to play. Yeah. They show up to play and Fogarty won't play with them. And instead, uh, Robbie Robertson and Bruce Springsteen play with them. Bruce Springsteen is, isn't that the who, one who inducts yeah. them into the Hall of Fame? Two years later, 95, Stu and Doug ask Fogarty again, can we start playing again? Can we be a band again? Can we do that? John refuses. So instead, the two of them get together. And join, this is another connection we forgot about. They add Elliot Easton as a guitarist <laughs> and they go out and uh, play as Creedence Clearwater Revisited. Yeah. And tour as that as a, as essentially a tribute band wow. to the band they were in. We're going to go to Jonathan J.M. Rowe and I'm going to ask him, can you give us your critical opinion and your personal opinion? Yes, I'll be glad to do that. Um, I'll make it fast. My critics rating is a, I said four or five originally. I think I'm going to say four or eight. I, it gets docked 0.2 stars as a critic because uh, I don't understand how any critic can actually like uh, hurt it through the grapevine and the way that it's done. <laughs> um, but overall, for what this album is, it's exceptional. It is a, it's a wonderful album. The songwriting is great. Um, it is a really a good slice of American music, especially the time in which it came and from the area that it came from, uh, California in the very early 1970s. The swamps of California. So surprising that this album came out, but it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's worthy of the praise that it has received. My personal rating (laughs) is going to be a three, five. I, I like the songs. But as an album, it's just they they're called a singles band. They're not I, called a singles band. It's a question I asked. No, no, that I've been I've seen it written that they're a singles band. And it is written. And I think that this is not an album, it's just a collection of singles. And I don't the playing on it drives me crazy. Um especially the drumming. Uh, the bass playing I think is great. But, um <laughs> yeah. And I, Next. Fogarty's vocals, like, like I said, it's got one setting and it, it kind of, <laughs> but, uh, and they, they, they work on about half the songs and they don't work on, on the other half for me. So it's a three, five, but I'll, I will listen to the songs again, but I don't know that I'll ever actually just put the album on again. That was, that was JM's opinion. And I will give mine now, uh, since I didn't pick this record, even though I should have picked this record even though it's in my territory. Um, critically, I'm going to give it a 4.9. I'm going to duck it a little bit, a very little bit, and I'm also going to say that anybody has to put out so many albums in such a small time uh, can be excused for, for some of the things that happened on this album. Uh, my personal opinion is it's a 5.0. It's this is a great album. Mm-hmm. If you don't give this uh, album a five zero, that means Creedence doesn't have a five zero album, and that's impossible. <laughs> um, this this album has some songs that aren't as good as they should be, some songs that are longer than they should be, but it has songs that overcome those shortcomings. Anyway, uh, it's is a great record. Uh, anyone that doesn't have this record that likes rock and roll has a serious problem. <laughs> so four nine personal, I mean four nine critical, uh, five zero personal. Tony, so 
I, I really appreciate what you said about the songs. Uh, there are things in the songs that make up for the shortcomings of things, parts of this, of certain songs that make up for the shortcomings of that song and elevate them. I agree with you a hundred percent about that. I don't think this is a five Oh album. Um, I, I be only because I'm not sure Credence does have a five Oh album. I think they get awfully damn close, but, um, I, I think uh, I think personally this is a four eight for me, and I think critically it's a four eight as well. Uh, I just my baby left me is a fun song, but it it's just it just doesn't spark me the way the rest of the stuff does. And I you know I don't I have a yes heard it through grapevines too long, but as we talked about, his vocals elevate that. So I I do think this is a this is a a remarkable album. I agree with you that if you don't have it and you're a rock and roll fan, that you need to correct that immediately. It's fun. It um it's fun and it's also like I said, that last song is just it's I love listening to it, but it's hard because it makes me so it it affects me so so emotionally. But um yeah, sorry to be long winded, but that's that's my take. And at this point, uh, I don't believe we have a recommendation tonight, so we're going to turn it on over to Jonathan J.M. Rowe. All right. Well, thank you there, Doug. And thank you, dear listener, for letting us fill your airwaves once again with another episode of This Is Vinyl Tap, the podcast that always goes to 11. As always, if you know anyone who likes the long player format, please let them know about this podcast. We're always looking to spread the word, and we're available on most podcasting platforms. And if you happen to be on one of those podcasting platforms, please leave us a review. Leave us some stars. We're always looking uh, for some feedback. Also, while you're there, you can let us know what albums you would like for us to review in the future. Also, you can uh, visit our Facebook page if you're so inclined to. And if you're old school like we are, you can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. But of course, for the ultimate This Is Vinyl Tap experience please visit our website. Up there, you'll find links to our past episodes, pictures, videos, information about uh, some of the albums we've talked about. You can also get links to all of our recommendations. And you can also contact us there. So it's www.tappingvinyl.com. Next week, we'll be looking at an album from 1980 by one of the best songwriters from the 1960s and 1970s, Pete Townsend, his solo album, Empty Glass. When people keep repeating, if you'll never fall in love, when everybody keeps retreating, but you can see me get enough, let my love open the door, let my love open the door. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, This is Vinyl Tap, hoping that you get to see the light.